Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. You've met someone. You weren't looking or hoping, but you didn't know how lonely you felt until you met them. You met that person by chance in a coffee shop. You both ordered the same drink, and you made an offhanded comment about it. They laughed, and you beamed. That moment brightened your day. You have the same humor, you think to yourself. That's good. You stand there awkwardly, not knowing how to follow up. But they go ahead and introduce themselves to you. You smile and introduce yourself back to them. The coffee shop is a cacophony of hurried, rushed people on their way to work, to drive their kids to school, and university students cramming for a paper. But between you and them, there is an ocean of mutual interest, your two boats floating towards one another. The attraction is instant. You begin talking to one another in earnest. Small talk at first, but when you see each other's drink orders get called and gravitate back towards one another to continue talking, you now know the interest is shared. You begin to leave the coffee shop. They turn left when they get outside, and you need to go right. But you aren't letting this moment fade. You can always apologize to your boss later. You arrive at their destination in the blink of an eye. The last few minutes etched into your mind. They'll be on replay all day. They thank you for walking them to work, and you, panicked, fumble over your words. Uh, number, please. I I mean, I'd love to have your number. Let's grab drinks. They laugh unperturbed by your clumsy words and take your phone as you pass it to them to put their number in. They even send themselves a little text saying, Hi, cutie, just so you have their number as well. And then you part ways. Fast forward a couple days and you're walking to meet them for dinner and drinks. Your heart is pounding in your chest. You're anxious, but the anxious that is truly overwhelming excitement. You even bought a new outfit, pouring over every detail of the date. Your footsteps feel like distant reverberations in your own mind as you try to imagine what tonight will be like. You know it'll be magical. You felt that connection. You saw the way they looked at you. Sure, the thought creeps in every few steps that maybe you're wrong, but you feel so sure about this, more sure than you've ever felt before, and all you've shared with them is a small walk and a few texts. But you know this could be it. This could be forever. You finally arrived where you planned to meet. A little odd, perhaps, you would have rather traveled there together, but oh well. You're there now, standing outside a nice lounge. And despite that oddity, like you've been telling yourself the whole way there, tonight will be magic. They aren't there yet, so you stand to the side of the lounge. There are big windows looking in and you feel awkward. The patrons might think you're being stood up, but you're just early. They don't know that, though. You pull out your phone to preoccupy yourself as you wait. There are no messages from them, so they must be on their way. 
It's now the agreed-upon time. They're just fashionably late. Twenty minutes passed and you're starting to pace and drift further and further from the lounge. You check your text, still no message. Why would they not send you a text if they were going to be so late? Or better yet, why didn't they call? You're frustrated and embarrassed. Hey, just wondering where you are. Hope everything is okay. You send the text. Ten minutes pass. No response. Twenty minutes pass and still no response. You're being stood up. Embarrassed, you walk home, hands in your pocket, and head hung low. Sound familiar? Maybe it wasn't outside of a lounge, and maybe you didn't meet at a coffee shop, but I think everyone has had a similar moment. You meet someone and become so caught up in your own feelings that it begins to skew reality, and you realize that you don't remember that moment the way it actually happened. Meeting that person and that feeling of attraction, it wasn't as mutual as you thought. It wasn't a palpable heartbeat shared between the two of you. It's disappointing and it can be disheartening and incredibly embarrassing, but it's all a part of life. Learning to temper your expectations is a lesson everyone has to learn. Even though you perceive a situation to be concrete, it isn't always what it seems. And then, sometimes it is. On October 6th, 1997, Monica Kay was born to Rosalena Gunnelson, a 14-year-old mother. And it was apparent from a very young age that Monica loved the spotlight and felt the compulsion to perform to others. She began dabbling in painting and the arts, creating soulful pieces as an amateur artist, even going so far at an older age as to decorate her car in her own artwork to show off as she drove around town, to show off what imaginative images were born from her mind. And as she continued to grow up and change, she also changed her name to Ezra McCandless, inspired by the free-natured spirit of Christopher McCandless from the book and movie Into the Wild, who decided to live free of the expectations of society, throwing away what he was and becoming who he felt he was meant to be, and eventually traveling to Alaska to live out his dream of absolute freedom in the harsh, primal Alaskan wilderness. Like Christopher, who she'd drawn her new name and identity from, she too began to transform, shrugging the heavy expectations of her parents and the town she grew up in, and began to question her gender, at times self-identifying as a boy. But as she grew older and more certain of who and what she wanted to be, Ezra later settled into her identification as a woman. And like Christopher McCandless, Ezra left on her own journey putting her childhood behind her and leaving for college. Unfortunately, it wasn't for her and she dropped out, but she quickly settled into downtown Eau Claire, Wisconsin and began her new life. And then it was in 2017 that Ezra met the love of her life. Jason Mengel was a medic in the Army Reserves when they met, and they quickly fell in love despite their 13-year age gap. After only eight months of knowing one another, 
Ezra and Jason moved in together and contemplated getting married. Things could not have been better for Ezra, it seemed. She was becoming the person she'd always wished to be. She had not only met the man she thought she could spend the rest of her life with, but he felt the same, and they were now living with one another. There wasn't a cloud in her sky. You wake up one morning and rub your eyes. Throwing the covers back, you stand and look out the window. The sky is brilliant pinks and oranges, and you think to yourself how beautiful it is. The light of the morning sun bouncing off a spattering of thin clouds hanging low in the sky and sending shards of effervescent light across every surface. The trees are surreal as if seen through rose-tinted glasses. The windows of buildings and houses are shining mirrors of brilliance. But as you take in all of this beauty, the words of your father echoes in your ears. Pink sky in morning, sailors take warning. Words he undoubtedly read in an old issue of a farmer's almanac. But nonetheless true. Not everything is as it seems. And today, although beautiful, right now, will inevitably rain. The sky will be blotted by bullish clouds melding together, and your chest will rumble with awful booming thunder as sheets of rain stab at the ground. Ezra and Jason were inseparable, just happy to share each other's company and often would hang out at the trendy coffee shop in downtown Eau Claire called Racy's. The coffee shop was eccentric and homey, with exposed brick walls, wooden beams, and a blue-tiled counter. The couple were comfortable there, spending time talking and getting to know each other more deeply. Racy's also happened to be where Jason and Ezra met a man named Alex Woodworth, a 23-year-old barista and substitute teacher and they quickly became friends. Alex was the oldest of four siblings, and he was a self-described nerd who wanted to be a philosophy professor and always aimed to help other people. Alex especially loved to help Ezra, who at times Alex saw seemed troubled. Ezra confiding in Alex and looking to him for support soon turned into a secret and scandalous affair between the two an affair later described by Ezra as a good old BDSM relationship. Together, the two blended sex with knives, choking, and bondage, exploring a darker side of their sexuality, the kind of relationship that stood opposite the one that she and Jason seemingly shared. But eventually Jason found out. He confronted Alex and Ezra, incredulous and bewildered that this had happened and infuriated. In reaction to this, Ezra decided to break it off with both Alex and Jason, and left the confrontation a single woman. Not long after, Jason left for military training for two weeks. But when he got back, Ezra needed to talk. And according to Ezra, while Jason had been away at military training, she had been sexually assaulted by a man named John Hansen, Jason's best friend. According to Ezra, John and her had been drinking when she blacked out, and she awoke to John raping her. Hearing this infuriated Jason, who went to police on Ezra's behalf on March 1st, 
2018. But during the investigation into the assault, police looked through Ezra's phone records. There, they found texts from Ezra to John Hansen, which were sexually suggestive. This doesn't prove she wasn't sexually assaulted. Flirting isn't consent. Even if that flirting is overly sexual, it still isn't consent. But it was enough for police to keep digging. When police learned that immediately after the alleged rape took place, Ezra had also had sex with Alex Woodworth. They quickly went to go speak with Alex. Police questioned Alex, asking if he knew anything about the sexual assault that had taken place. Confused, Alex said no, but he knew that she had been with John Hansen and that they had slept together after a few drinks. Ezra had told Alex that she deeply regretted it, and police started to piece together that perhaps the rape claim was never meant to make it all the way to their doorstep that perhaps this was a ploy to cover up the fact that she had consensual sex with Jason's best friend, ending any chance they might ever have of getting back together. And as a result, police dropped the case. Investigators weren't entirely wrong. Ezra, no longer living with Jason, moved back in with her family outside of Eau Claire. Ezra missed Jason and fought to get back together. She had been a victim, and he couldn't see it. She was absolutely surrounded by horrible men who pursued her with ill intentions, at times also characterizing Alex, her now ex-boyfriend, that same way to her also now ex-boyfriend Jason. She tried to tell Jason to assure him that she needed him, that it wasn't her fault, but he had had enough of her lying. He couldn't, and he wouldn't trust her any longer. On March 22, 2018, nearly a month after Jason had gone to police to report the sexual assault, and nearly a month since she'd moved out of Eau Claire and moved back in with her family, while at Racy's coffee shop, Jason saw her. Although Jason and Ezra had been texting the night before, she didn't mention she would be in town today. She told Jason that she had driven into town to Racy's to show Alex some of her writing and drawings. She was getting back to her passions, creating art, and she was getting her life back on track. After talking to Jason, Ezra left Racy's to go over to Alex Woodworth's home, but Jason felt uneasy. Something felt off. Maybe it was because he knew Ezra so intimately, or maybe it was a tension in the air that subconsciously twisted his stomach, but something, it seemed to Jason, was going on, and it wasn't good. Jason followed his intuition and cycled over to Alex's home to see what was going on, to make sure everything was okay. When he cycled past the house, he saw Ezra's car idling outside. He then cycled around the block a few times, he still cared for Ezra, but he wasn't sure if he should get involved. A janitor in the area saw Jason cycling past the house a few times, park his bicycle, and pace at the bottom of the driveway, looking in the idling car. And so the janitor called the police to report a suspicious individual. When police arrived, they approached Jason to find out what he was doing in the area. Jason implied to police that his ex-girlfriend was in the house with her ex-boyfriend 
and that he felt that she shouldn't be alone with him, recounting the fact that Alex and Ezra had sexual relations after she had gone to Alex for consoling, that he had been predatory, using the sexual assault and her vulnerability to his advantage. Police then went and spoke to the pair in the home, asking if everything was okay and expressing the concerns of Jason. The police officer probed the situation, asking why her car was outside idling, but everything seemed fine. The police officer checked their ID and then left to assure Jason everything was fine. As Jason got on his bike to ride away, Alex got in the passenger side of the idling vehicle and Ezra got behind the wheel and they drove away from the home. Unbeknownst to two of the three, Ezra, Jason, and Alex, within a few short hours, something terrible would happen that would change their lives forever. What we see isn't real. It's real in the sense that it's there, but the context of what we see is molded by our biases, our preconceived notions of that which we are looking at. If you see a glass of water half full, I might tell you it's half empty. Neither of us are wrong, but neither you nor I, my creepy friend, are right either. The narrative we apply to our own reality can shape that truth that sense of knowing to the world around us, but it can also create a divide. Do you think Ezra is a victim? Was Jason concerned and caring, or was he a creepy, jealous ex-boyfriend stepping over the line? Was Alex a kind-hearted man, or did he take advantage of her in the most horrifying circumstances? On the evening of March 22, 2018, Ezra found herself alone. She walked along a muddy dirt road, potholes filled with water, and mud inches deep that suctioned the bottom of your foot on every step. There was snow still half-melted, sitting atop the dead and pushed-over grass to either side of the road, and Ezra was confused, walking alone, muddy, and dripping in blood. The road took her to a farm owned by Don Sipple. She called for help, and when he came, she was confused and couldn't tell him what had happened. She couldn't remember. All she knew is that she was hurt and that she was cold. Don called authorities immediately, and when police showed up, she wasn't chatty, continually repeating that she was confused and cold. She was in shock. But eventually, after she had warmed up and calmed down, while police questioned her trying to figure out what had happened, where all the blood had come from, as it was becoming increasingly obvious to investigators that the blood wasn't all hers. Ezra told police that her ex-boyfriend Alex Woodworth had attacked her, and that's all she knew. And while police continued to push her to reveal more details, to remember what happened, she kept asking for one person and one person only. Jason Mengel. It had been only three hours since Jason had seen Ezra at Alex's, when he had seen them drive off in her car together. But in that three hours, something terrible had happened. 
something that led her to showing up on the doorstep of Don Sipple's farm, bruised, crying for help, her clothes torn and ripped, and soaked in blood. During a police interview later, Ezra still couldn't remember what had happened. Her memory was vague and foggy, and in her own words, like she had been blindfolded. She just couldn't remember what had happened. All she could remember was feeling terrified of Alex Woodworth. Police continued pressing Ezra. They couldn't find Alex or her car. Where was Alex? And where was the car? Ezra was starting to remember bits and pieces and eventually told police they were talking about stuff and he had got upset. All emotion left his face. The blank stare scared her. She began to explain herself, trying to calm Alex down, and after that it was a blank. Investigators asked her how she had ended up all the way out at Don Sipple's farm, and she once again said she just couldn't remember. She only remembered snapping too, feeling cold and knowing that her feet hurt really bad, walking down the road towards the farmhouse. Police began their investigation by looking for Alex. He wasn't at home, he wasn't at work, he didn't seem to be answering his phone. Alex was nowhere to be found. Police returned to the farm the next day, trying to reverse engineer the following evening, looking for clues or evidence that might shed light. Investigators quickly found muddy footprints and simply followed them down the road, which led them straight to Ezra's car. As they walked to the car, they saw Alex his body falling out of the vehicle. Police examined the tragic scene. Alex had been stabbed. Not one, not twice, but 16 times. His torso was riddled with holes, his shirt half dry and still half dripping with his own blood. After discovering the crime scene, police went back to Ezra and told her they had found her car and Alex who was dead. And suddenly, she seemed to remember Alex had a knife, and he started carving the word boy into her arm. She told police that Alex had known she had questioned her gender in the past, and that she used to identify as a boy, and carved it into her arm. But police started to break down her statement. Alex apparently was in the passenger seat. She was in the driver's seat. According to Ezra, Alex reached over with his right arm across both his body and her body and grabbed her left arm on the furthest side from him. Then holding that arm with his left arm and used his right hand to carve the word boy into her arm. It just doesn't make sense. Ezra eventually admitted she had done it herself. She then said that they had both been in the back seat that he had attacked her and tried to cut her clothes off to sexually assault her. She had miraculously wrestled the knife from him and defended herself which resulted in Alex's death. But police looked at her hands which only had superficial wounds. It didn't look like she had grabbed a knife by the blade as she had described to them. That wasn't the only thing that didn't match up. While police processed the crime scene, they quickly became aware that the car itself wasn't actually that bloody, and that in fact the evidence suggested that he had been stabbed outside the car. 
He had no defensive wounds, as if he had been attacked without warning. They examined Alex's body, and it was clear that Ezra hadn't stopped at just defending herself. After Alex was dead, Ezra had taken her time. Ezra had gone through the trouble of mutilating Alex's genitalia with the knife. At this point, police theorized that Ezra had wanted to get back with Jason, and that Ezra decided she needed to remove Alex from the picture to do so. Two weeks after the discovery of Alex's body, the stab wounds and the mutilation, Ezra McCandless was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. And 18 months later, her trial began. During the trial, Ezra insisted from the very get-go that she was acting in self-defense. Ezra testified that after they had reached the point in their relationship where she felt comfortable and disclosed to Alex that she used to identify as a man, that Alex actually preferred she present herself in that masculine manner while around him. She disclosed to the court how he often told her how confident she looked while she presented herself as male and how attracted he was to her as such, referring to her as his boy. Ezra then went on testifying that the word boy between them used to refer to gender, but soon became a verbal tool of possession, and that she felt objectified by the words his boy. In her trial, her story morphed to account for certain facts that the police had deemed suspicious or unlikely. Now she found herself with Alex in the back seat. She kneed him in the groin instead of her earlier story where she had wrestled the knife away. She then grabbed the knife which he had dropped, and she fought to get away from him, fighting to get out of the car. And as he kept grabbing at her and grabbing at her, this is when she began to stab Alex, according to her in self-defense, 16 times. Jury was quick to notice she seemed to be enjoying the attention. The entire trial seemed to be the Ezra show. She was glib and made jokes, laughing with her mom and showing off her outfit. It was as if she was on stage. People remarked at how calm and composed she was while talking about this trauma she apparently had been victim to. And one moment that not a single person in the trial missed was how she lit up as she coyly glanced over at Jason Mengel as he was called to the stand to testify. Long lost lovers in her eyes reunited under trying times. And just last month in February 2020, after only three hours of deliberation, Ezra was found guilty of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to life in prison. She will be eligible for parole at the age of 70 years old. For the jury, it was too much to overlook the fact that she had gone out of her way to travel all the way to Eau Claire on a suspended license. Her father had previously taken the keys away from her, and she snuck the keys back and took the car all the way. There was premeditation and planning involved in the murder of Alex Woodworth. The girl that seemed so much to be the victim throughout most of the story ended up being the predator and Alex the prey. And like I said, not everything is as it seems. After her conviction, she released a statement on her Instagram. I've touched on the topic of media before, 
I feel like I should acknowledge its presence. I have no obligation. I have no commitment. I feel that I must comment as things have unfortunately gotten out of hand. I know that I'll never successfully combat the prejudicial, persistent, invasive coverage. I am only one, but I am one. So I would like to express my voice on what I have observed. Most of all, the lack of respect for anyone involved in this tragic event is appalling. We are stripped to our skeletons and reduced to abstract ideas, feeling the edge of every second that passes by. I know that I'm not the only individual with this burden. I feel in their behavior, they disregard our pain, the loss. This is not just something to click, watch, subscribe, and comment on. I ask, could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through each other's eyes for an instant? I'm never going to win the media. I am not here to do that. What I am here to do is draw awareness, to gather support, as well highlight a system that is broken. I want to thank all of you that do support me. I want to thank all that continue to believe in me. Your support keeps this fight alive. Not only a fight for yourself, but the fight for a better future. Thank you. This statement is still up on our Instagram, at dirt underscore fiend. So, my friend, at the end of this confusing and rushed tale about Ezra McCandless and her love triangle with Jason Mengel, John Hansen, and Alex Woodworth, and at the conclusion of this love triangle, I have to ask you, is it what it seemed? Did we come to the conclusion that we thought we would? I'm not even sure I have a conclusion. I'm not even sure if I'm convinced that she didn't kill Alex in self-defense. And I don't know how either you or I could be completely sure. What does reasonable doubt mean? I know this whole story up until now, to me at least, has not been what it seems. And I hope that as you finish this episode of Tales by Cole, take a minute and think about all these stories you hear. Even though I find her statement self-satisfying, there is truth in it. We've talked about it on earlier podcasts. These are real people. They need to be shown respect. This isn't just some fictional tale of murder and mayhem. They exist, and they could have very well easily been you or I, or at least been in our town, someone we knew or a friend. So, Creep, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed today's story, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in increasing the audience and getting these stories out. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by myself, Cole Weavers, and production and editing by Matt Black. And remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the door.